From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Diseases like muscular dystrophy and Lou Gehrig's disease are debilitating and in some cases fatal. But there's ongoing research into these and other neuromuscular diseases. We'll hear about efforts to find better treatments. Also on the program, in the past, treatment for some diseases was often one size fits all. But with individualized medicine, that's no longer the case. We'll have an update on tailored treatment. And a new study has found that lowering systolic blood pressure to 120 greatly reduces the risk of cardiovascular complications and death in older adults with high blood pressure. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, we recently received this letter from a listener, as you know, and she says, I really enjoy listening to your program each week. I like her already. Yeah. (laughs) I learn a great deal from it. Now, my suggestion for a topic for an upcoming program would be to discuss neuromuscular diseases. I'm very interested in learning what research is taking place and how close we are to viable treatment options. Thank you, Jamie. And we're happy to oblige, and thanks so much for listening. Now, I got in contact with Jamie and I said what specific type uh, because this is a big range of things that she's asking about and she specifically wants to know about this type of muscular dystrophy called limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2 C. To answer her question and to give us a better understanding of neuromuscular diseases in general is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Eric Sorensen. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sorensen. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So let's go to Jamie's question, and it has to do with what is limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2C? What does that mean, Dr. Sorensen? Yeah, well, it's an awful long name, and um, just if you want to break it down into its pieces and where why it has the name it does, the you know muscular dystrophies are a mixed uh, disorder of the muscle that are inherited. Uh, So these are genetic disorders of the muscle that causes uh, generally progressive muscle weakness as people uh, age, and they can have a wide range of onset. Uh, Many of them are childhood onset, and others are adult onset. And so depending on the type that they have, they'll have the different symptoms. The limb girdle uh, refers to the most uh, sort of the generic um, muscle distribution of weakness that that many people with uh, dystrophy have, and that refers to the shoulder and the hips. So it's the the muscles high up in the arms and high up in the legs that are most commonly Mm. affected with the muscular dystrophy. And and that's kind of the generic distribution, the limb girdle. And there's many, many types of limb girdle dystrophy. The number refers to the inheritance pattern. So type 1 muscular dystrophy, limb girdle dystrophy, is autosomally dominant inherited, which means uh, you only have to inherit one copy of the gene to get the disease, and it tends to travel in multiple generations. So Um, either your mother or your father, if either one of them have it as a child, you're going to have it. Uh, you'll carry the gene, okay. and uh, those who carry the gene, most of those people do get the disease. It's interesting that there are a few people who will carry the gene their entire life and will never show manifestations of the disease, um, but that's less common. All right, um, and that's type 1. So type 1 is a dominant. Type 2 is recessive, meaning that you have to have two copies of the gene in order to make manifestations of the disease. Which means from mother and father. You have to get one from your mother and one copy from your father. And these, these recessive uh, diseases tend not to travel in multiple generations of the family, but may have more than one brother and sister or sibling pair affected by the disease because of the inheritance pattern. And what about uh, the this? recessive diseases oh, okay. tend to be more severe and occur at a younger age of 
onset than the dominant. So the type 2 in general are more severe and younger age of onset. The letter, the type C, refers to the actual gene that is the mutation occurs in. And this particular gene is in a protein called the sarcoglycan protein, um, which is a membrane protein of the muscle. Uh, most of the forms of muscular dystrophy have to do with mutations within a certain collection of proteins on the cell, the muscle membrane. And it's been referred to as the dystrophin-associated glycocomplex, which is a long name, wow. which merely refers to a constellation of lots of proteins that are bound together. The biggest one and the most common one is a protein called dystrophin. This is the protein that has the mutation for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy which is the one everyone thinks about when they think about muscular dystrophy because it affects the young boys. And if people remember the Muscular Dystrophy Association telethon, those were always the, the people that were included in, in the telethon as examples of muscular dystrophy. You can see why I'm not a neurologist, yeah. can't you? It's, it's complicated, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I can see, oh, so the type 1, type 2, and the different C type, that makes sense in this whole realm of talking about genetics that yeah. m- that medicine has become today. That's right. Yeah. How is this then that generations ago, how was muscular dystrophy even dealt with yeah. when genetics weren't part of the equation? Yeah, so there's no question that genetics has revolutionized muscular dystrophy and neuromuscular diseases in general uh, and has changed our whole approach to how we name them, classify them. And historically, the muscular dystrophy have mainly been named because of either their inheritance pattern or their distribution of weakness or uh, maybe something specific on a muscle biopsy that would give a clue to a specific pathology. Uh, And that's why the nomenclature has developed the way that it has. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this would just be called limb girdle dystrophy, and that would be the end of it. We wouldn't know the mutation. We would we would know the inheritance pattern. Yeah, I was going to say probably. you wouldn't know which gene is mutated, and oftentimes because of that, you have a hard time giving a prognosis or a course because you didn't have the specifics. Family history would right. have been basically what you had to go by. That's right. That was all you had. Wow. So the use of genetics has to be just revolutionizing treating or yeah. Diagnosing patients, what about treating patients? Well, particularly in the diagnosis, nowadays, uh, many, just based on the distribution of the symptoms, age of the patient, inheritance pattern, we can oftentimes bypass muscle biopsies and, you know, painful biopsies uh, and go right to the genetic testing and identify with it and come up with a diagnosis. And so it actually has streamlined the diagnosis considerably and has made it much more specific. Now, in terms of the treatment, uh, the genetics has uh, led to a number of treatment strategies, uh, mainly gene therapy. Uh, this is one of the early, in terms of looking at gene therapy and trans, uh, administering um, normal genes to affected individuals who have genetic mutations. Uh, the muscular dystrophies are a prime target for these gene therapy trials uh, because the target is accessible. It's muscle, and so it's it's widespread. It's easy to get access to. It's easy to transfect with viral vectors. It's easy to infect the muscles with the with the normal genes. And so uh, there's a great deal of interest uh, in using gene therapy for muscular dystrophy. And in particular, the type of dystrophy that was described, this is one of the one of the uh, targets of the gene therapy. So yeah. when you say gene therapy, what are you are you trying to get rid of the gene that they have, or just replace it with a new gene that they don't have? Yep. So for the autosomal recessive disorders, it's usually a loss of function, so the protein's not working. Uh, and so we have to replace it with a protein that works. And so we are we, the the idea is to inject a protein that is functional. Uh, so you have you. You try and get a, a normal, non-mutated gene, a, a natural gene, and put it into a vector that can be that can infect it into these cells. 
Oh my um, goodness! And so that that's a really hot area of of muscular dystrophy research. Well, that's what uh, Jamie's really the meat and potatoes of Jamie's question is. She's interested in learning what research is taking place and how close a viable treatment may be. So that's got to be one of the hottest spots of the research is right. that gene therapy. So as of yet, it has it's, it has worked in animals. It has not yet worked in humans. And so we're hopefully only working out the details at this point, but hopefully within the next you know number of years that that will become a, a option for people. When you say it works, do you it, can you cure muscular dystrophy in an well, animal? Well, so it doesn't necessarily cure it, but it uh, it sl- can slow it down, and uh, you can change the prognosis. A good example is the type of muscular dystrophy called uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, this is a severe form of muscular dystrophy that affects young men uh, and uh, causes premature uh, death. Uh, at a young age, usually from cardiac or from respiratory failure. Uh, there's a, a less and more benign form of the disease, a less severe form of the disease called Becker's dystrophy, which affects the same protein. And uh, the, tr- uh, the strategies at this point are to try and change a Duchenne's patient into a Becker's-style patient because hmm. that has a more li- normal life expectancy and a much more benign course and, and much less severe course. Um, and so those are kind of the examples of where the science is at today. But, of course, obviously we're hoping for at some day we'll be able to replace the genes entirely in, in uh, young, uh, young people before they're symptomatic from it and prevent the disease from ever occurring. How many people have muscular dystrophy? Do you have, what's that number? Um, I guess I do, I'm not sure about the epidemiology of the disease and the frequency and the incidence of the disease, but, uh, but it is one of the more common forms of neuromuscular disease that we see. Our guest is neurologist and neuromuscular disease expert, Dr. Eric Sorensen. There's still more to come. Dr. Sorensen is an expert on ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. We'll talk with him about that when we come back. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our guest, neurologist and neuromuscular disease expert, Dr. Eric Sorensen. So we pretty well covered muscular dystrophy. You've told us that it is an inherited disease. Certain forms just affect males like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. We now want to ask you about some other neuromuscular conditions. And one of those, and I know you're a true expert in this area, and that's Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Right. This is a disease that's horrific for anybody who has it. How has the ice bucket challenge and the money raised help in the fight against ALS? Yeah, this is an overwhelming response that none of us saw coming. And uh, did you take the ice bucket challenge? Uh, we've done it twice. <laughs> so we did it. We did it last year when it, it hit its first wave. And uh, now the ALS Association has adopted it as a annual fundraiser, and we did it again just a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is on YouTube. It, I think it has been posted <laughs> to YouTube. Um, uh, but as you said, there was a tremendous response, 100, uh, over $100 million uh, of, a, of a windfall for the organization. And that's just the ALS Association. There's other organizations that benefited as well, who uh, patient, other patient advocacy groups throughout the United States and in Canada and That's really throughout the world. I was going to ask, what, so, was, yeah, what was the bigger deal? Was it raising $150 million or was it the awareness yeah, yeah. of there's ALS? No, so two, so there's the two benefits, on no question, was one is the awareness that the disease got uh, and the exposure that, and the, uh, the, for the public exposure to the, uh, to the disease. And as you said, it's really a, a tragic disease to anyone who's afflicted by the condition. It oftentimes hits people in the prime of their life. It's progressive. Uh, it's just devastating to them personally, and it comes with a lot of needs 
just care needs. And so you know, having the awareness of this, of what people are going through when they have ALS is really quite, uh, is quite extraordinary, the kind of exposure that they got. So I, I think that the average survival is only two to, to five years after the onset of symptoms. Tell us a little bit, describe for us what really happens in ALS. What's, what's wrong? Yeah, so um, for reasons that are not understood, uh, at some point in a person's life, and usually uh, it's later in their life, so at the peak onset of the disease is about six age of 65, uh, the motor, the neurons that go to the muscles start to die one so by th- one. Those are nerves, small nerves, the neurons? neurons. Yep, okay. the nerves that go to the muscles start to die one by one in the spinal cord. Uh, and about a third of the time, it starts in a person's speech, and their speech will slur. About a third of the time, it'll start in a hand with hand weakness. And about a third of the time, it'll start in one of the feet. And it is progressive. So it starts in one area and starts to worsen, and then it will spread from one leg to the other leg, from one hand to the other, and will eventually uh, spread to all the voluntary muscles of the body. And like the muscular dystrophy that we were talking about before the break, is this the is there gen, the genetic component with ALS? Uh, there is. Um, the majority of ALS uh, has no known cause. So about 90 to 95 percent of cases of ALS, it's not clear why it happens. But in about five to 10 percent of cases of ALS, it does run in families the way other genetic disorders do. Um, almost all forms of ALS are inherited. Uh, of the genetic forms of ALS are inherited in a dominant fashion, almost all of them, which means it does travel through generations as opposed to all of them occurring in one one uh, one iterator, one generation. Uh, and um, uh, we know uh, a number of the genes that cause the familial forms of ALS. In fact, probably two thirds to seventy five percent of the genes now responsible for genetic uh, the genetic forms of ALS are described. Uh, the, one of the most common ones was described at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville uh, by Dr. Rosa Rademacher. She discovered what's called the C9ORF72 mutation, which occurs uh, most commonly in Scandinavian people of uh, Scandinavian, mm-hmm. northern European descent, I should say. Uh, and it accounts for about 60% of the ALS cases, uh, 60% of the familial ALS cases in that, in that population. So how do you know if it is familial? And if it is familial, what do you tell the patient and their family? Well, so the key to the familial component of it is that it does travel in other family members. Uh, so a parent, a sibling, a child, uh, aunt or uncle would be affected by the disease as well. But it does get tricky. It's not an easy question to answer because of this issue of penetrance, meaning that some people will carry the genetic mutation their entire lives and never show signs of the disease. Uh, and so not everyone who gets the abnormal gene will develop ALS. Uh, and we know that a certain proportion of people who have no family history, if you test them for the, gen- the genes, a small proportion of those people, roughly around 10% or so, will be found to carry one of the genes. And so then it becomes really tricky to advise them about what their family's risks are because no one else in the family has shown signs of it. Um, and so it, beca- it's, it uh, becomes very um, uh, sensitive to discuss mm-hmm. the issue with the family uh, if they happen to have a known genetic mutation. So it's highly advised that anyone who has ALS and they're interested in doing genetic testing for any of these known genes, that they get the appropriate genetic counseling ahead of time so that they're they're in a psychological state or a proper state of mind to be able to uh, understand and appreciate what the, what, the, what the result means. That $150 million that was raised with last year's Ice Bucket Challenge, 
What did we get with that money? What well, excitements have? What exciting yeah. developments have we had? Well, it's still in evolution. Uh, the money is still being allocated and still being distributed, and grant uh, are still being submitted to the association. So the answer is not fully in yet. Um, but as it continues to, um, as we continue to do the research in ALS, we're fast gaining or f- learning very quickly what the causes are, even in the sporadic cases to better identify what are the mechanisms of why do the cells die? Why why does this happen in the first place? Um, and you can learn a lot of that from the genetic elements of it. And so, for example, many of the genes that are mutated in ALS um, are genes that are in every cell of the body, and yet only the motor neurons are vulnerable. And... Um, and so the, the motor as opposed to sensory. Right. So the sensation the remains intact, intact, but it's the, the motor, the muscle ones. That's correct. That's correct. And the, if you look at the genes themselves, there's no connection between them. So there's no seeming link between one mutation in one family and another mutation in another family. And so it's really what is that final common pathway and why are the motor neurons the ones that are vulnerable? And that's where all the work is being done on a on a causative level right now, and that's where a lot of the money is concerned. I think we have to find the causes of it before we can really get serious about the treatment. Because there is no treatment. Basically, mm-hmm. don't you have, what, one drug that you there's, can give patients with ALS? There's a drug called Riliazole that will modestly prolong somebody's life by a matter of a few months, which is not the, not the response ALS patients are hoping for. They're really hoping for better. And what's the longest you've ever seen someone with ALS live? I mean, well, can that, it be longer than five? Yeah, oh, absolutely. There are people, that's one of the things that we try and focus on when people are first diagnosed, is that not everybody with the diagnosis has a poor prognosis. Um, it's true that uh, about half of the people will live about two to three years, and 90% of the people will only live five years or less. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people who will live 10, 15, 20 years or longer. Uh, with the disease, and any of us who um, uh, run ALS clinics or involved in ALS clinics uh, have pay- examples of patients who've uh, had very long survivals and have had better better prognoses. And so we try and tell people that when this when they receive this diagnosis, even though we don't have ways of curing it or stopping it, there are a proportion of people who don't who do relatively well, and that could be them. And it sounds like you're fairly optimistic that especially with the $115 million and whatever money is raised this year, that new research will lead to a, a potential cure, at least better treatments for ALS. Yeah, I think we're all hopeful that that's, that that's the direction we're going. And I think it takes, it takes two things. It takes money. Um, you, it does take money to do the research, but it also takes great ideas. Uh, and uh, as I look around and we go to our international meetings and discuss these with colleagues around the world, there's some really interesting and great things happening, and I, I really hope and, and I hope that this does lead to meaningful treatments for our patients. Yeah, good to hear because it's a, obviously a devastating disease. Dr. Eric Sorensen, neurologist, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. When we come back, in the past, treatment for some diseases was often one-size-fits-all, but with individualized medicine, that's no longer the case. We'll have an update on tailored treatment. And a new study found surprising results about how low your blood pressure should be. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A quick midday nap may not only help you feel refreshed, it may also help your heart. I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. It's all about nap time. Researchers found that a midday rest decreases blood pressure and reduces the need for medication for it. And the longer that nap, the better. 
Starting college is an exciting time, but the change can also be overwhelming for some students. Depression is common. Mayo Clinic Dr. Jay Hecker says look for these symptoms. Some of the symptoms would be uh, self-isolation, sadness, eating uh, changes too much or too little, sleeping too much or, or too little. Depression is serious, but it is treatable. Contact your health care provider if your college student may be depressed. And MIT researchers say the risk of getting post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, may be higher if you've lived with chronic stress. They want to find ways to reduce the impact of traumatic events that trigger PTSD. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. Individualized medicine, also called personalized medicine, has sometimes been described as providing the right patient with the right drug at the right dose at the right time. And that may not be far off because individualized medicine relies on tailoring medical treatment to a person's individual genetic makeup. The key to individualized medicine, or IM, is what scientists are learning about the human genome, the genetic package which we humans come equipped with at birth. Later this month, some of those scientists will be gathering for a national IM conference here in Rochester, Minnesota. Among them will be Dr. Keith Stewart. Dr. Stewart is an oncologist and also director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Stewart. It's great to see you. Oh, well, thank you for having me here today. Are things uh, moving more quickly or are things moving at a slower, more deliberate pace when it comes to individualized medicine? Uh, things are moving incredibly quickly, almost uh, too fast to keep up with some days. Uh, the transition of genomics from the research laboratory into the clinical practice is happening at an astonishing rate. And, and here at Mayo Clinic, we're, we're trying to be you know, leaders in that uh, revolution that's happening actually to medicine. And part of our responsibility is education and hence our individualized medicine conference which will bring 800 people here to Rochester, Minnesota next uh, next week. Uh, when it comes to uh, this being in the lab room or the exam room, you said it's actually moving past the lab and the exam. Where is it right now? Where is individualized well, medicine? One of the very um, interesting and somewhat controversial areas is the providing of sequencing direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. So sending your saliva for sequencing uh, at relatively inexpensively at low cost um, to a number of companies who are offering this now. And in fact, Mayo Clinic has decided to participate in this through our Center for Individualized Medicine. We have partnered with a group um, led by the sequencing giant Illumina and we, a company has been formed called Helix. Uh, this will launch products next summer. It will be an application-based system like your iPhone where you can have your genome sequenced at very low cost through the purchase of an application. It's a sequence once, query often model so that you will get some information initially. But And, and perhaps at first it will just be something you're curious about, your 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 um, predisposition to certain diseases, the, the, the sort of fun stuff. But eventually everybody has a family member or themselves who, who develop an illness and they'll want to know, does my genome tell me why uh, members of my family have aortic aneurysms or hypertension or diabetes? And they'll be able to go back and query it in the future. And, of course, when they do learn something, 
we'd like them to seek specialized medical care and, and we think that that's where the academic medical centers will play a role where this is going to be screening quality testing that will require validation in, in, a, in a real medical lab. So that, of, that's moving very quickly. Right. Well, part uh, that when I saw that that had happened, that we were partnering with Helix, and I thought if a person can sign, send away their saliva and then they get back this report that says you have genetic evidence of developing early onset dementia, something yeah. along those lines. You know, th- th- is there a genetic counselor <laughs> that, well, that should come packaged up with this somehow? Which is that something that we won't do. Uh, we feel that that kind of level of significant clinical medical problem, cancer, dementia, um, being the big ones, that that would require an FDA-approved test. And we will eventually offer those, but those would come equipped with genetic counseling before and after the test is run. And that's one of the areas where this there's a little bit of a risk of the marketplace getting ahead of the reality and and the science and that we have to proceed with some caution into that area. We, we, We will get there, but I think we need to understand a little bit better. It must be exciting just professionally doing this for a living, that you're heading off in a direction of medicine that has never been been stepped on. <laughs> I have the best job at Mayo Clinic today. We have just a, it's just um, just so interesting and amazing every day to be part of this revolution. I, I truly think that 20 years from now, any child born will have their genome sequenced in their lifetime. It's cheap. It never changes. It informs your health and your family's health. It would be inconceivable for me that we don't do that. And I see our role here as over those two decades or whatever it takes, building the evidence in support of that, understanding how to apply in the clinical practice, which we're doing today now, and and being part of that discovery. And I'll tell you, I just had my own genome sequence to set an example. I got it back this week. Uh, and I was a little nervous when they pushed the paper across the table to me to see what it would tell me. Any surprises that you didn't know about in your family well, history? Well, there was, actually. I mean, fortunately, <laughs> there was nothing terrible, but I, I discovered that I'm a carrier of a disease which is um, often associated with uh, the Jewish populations in Central Europe. So I told my family, we'd better go back and check the family tree here because oh. I don't know where that came from. Wow, <laughs> is that, that is so interesting. Okay, well, what about cancers? You know, we do know when it comes to breast cancer, the yeah. BRCA, you know, some of those um, genes are, have been identified and women are being tested for it and some then going ahead and having surgery. Um, where does cancer fit into individualized medicine? Well, there's, there's two different things in cancer we can talk about. The first are people who have cancer. Cancer is a genetic disease, and if you sequence the genome of the cancer, you can often find precise targets that we have drugs that will impact. And you can actually use those targets, and you can monitor people's blood. We call it liquid biopsy. You don't even need to go and get, you know, put needles into the body. You can find this in the blood and follow it over time. So in cancer, we've been doing this now for, for almost uh, five or six years. We're... We very commonly do genomic sequencing on the tumor to find drug targets. The second part is the inherited risk of cancer, which is what you're talking about. There are 39-odd genes, I think, uh, that predispose you and your family to cancer risk, and we can screen for those, and you can take action based on them. What I would say about that is that's that's a detailed discussion with a physician, some people will opt to be interventionists, some will opt for watchful waiting, but we can do those tests and we will be offering those over time if people want to know them. Again, I think one important point to remember about all of this is the consumer and the patient are in charge. 
they can decide how much or how little they want to know. We just have to play the role of educating them in, in what that means. Yeah, just because, uh, or just like for you, it's something new uh, to be heading off in this area of individualized medicine. It's new for patients, something new for them to be managing and thinking of and be aware of. So I'll tell you a story, and, and it's, it's going to come out in the media uh, one of these days. Uh, one of our patients has an identical twin, and our patient decided to have her genome sequencing and then to her surprise, her twin was not thrilled with this plan. It particularly didn't like the idea the patient would know something she didn't know. Um, and when they talked to their family, the, the, the mother was all for it in, in her 80s. Uh, the son was all for it, but the daughter wanted nothing to do with it. So this whole family dynamic was created by one person deciding to have their genome sequenced, which was fascinating, and I think you know it's something that... Um, I think that you'll see some media stories about because it's such an interesting area. Isn't there, though, as you age, that your genetic code can start to change a little bit? As uh, I'm thinking of what I learned from Dr. Bauer about telomeres, that maybe as your cells duplicate, that they don't exact make exact duplicates of what they had before. So does that mean your genetic code is changing or just that how your cells are aging is changing? I think it's the latter. Your genetic code does not change. However, the parts of chromosomes called telomeres, the ends of chromosomes, can get nibbled away, which is part of the aging process, which is what he's describing. And in fact, shortening of telomeres is one of the things that puts you at higher risk for cancer, for example. Uh, so, so I think that's what he's talking about. What does change is the environment's effect on DNA, what we call epigenetics. And I give these, my mother's an identical twin, and I have a slide of her I use because she developed uh, rheumatoid arthritis in her 60s. Her sister developed insulin-dependent brittle diabetes. They have exactly the same genetic code. So that is epigenetics, the environment acting on them in different ways. That's an area we know very little about, and it's just really in the dawn of understanding how how the, the food we eat, the places we live, the bugs we're exposed to, uh, change how the DNA operates and functions. So where, what direction is epigenetics? Is it just getting going? or It's getting going. In cancer, there are already drugs out there that will turn the systems off. And t- I give the analogy of a Christmas tree. It's like your DNA is the Christmas tree you buy in the box or cut down in the field. Uh, epigenetics are the lights and the tinsel that you put on it that give it, uh, give it life or when you take them off, make it silent. Um, so there are drugs that will silence the Christmas tree, silence your DNA, mm-hmm. make it quiet, and that turns out to be a good thing in cancer sometimes. Um, even more an, in, an even more interesting angle of individualized medicine, the epigenetics. One, one of many. Any other anecdotes, anecdotal stories that you can share with us? Oh, many. Um, um, one comes to mind that had eluded diagnosis from age six months to age into their early 20s failed dozens of drugs, weighed only 25 kilograms at age 22, and genomic sequencing was performed here at Mayo Clinic on that individual, uh, revealed a mutation that affected the immune system and a drug which could be applied with, with fairly dramatic results. So I think that's, a, uh, that's the kind of, and almost creating a new medical disease because this hadn't been well recognized before. So rewriting the medical textbooks in some some instances. So. I think when I hear those stories about, you know, there's one in every 100,000 people that's diagnosed with this disease, when I hear that, I think, I wonder if that's really what the odds are or just the people that are getting found, you know, the people who go for help and, and it's discovered. 
So another example uh, to that point is we had a lady whose bone marrow had failed and we, we sequenced her genome and discovered that she had uh, what is a, normally thought of as a childhood genetic disease. And what that implies is that we're missing all these patients mm-hmm. who are actually have a more subtle form of the disease and live longer and develop adult problems. And that, again, is sort of rewriting the book in some ways. Well, we've been talking about individualized medicine with Dr. Keith Stewart. Dr. Stewart, again, is an oncologist and the director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being on the program, Dr. Stewart. Oh, it's a delight. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a new study has found that maintaining a systolic blood pressure of 120 greatly reduces the risk of complications and death from heart disease among older adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And I'm Tracy McRae. Treating high blood pressure has generally meant trying to bring your systolic pressure, that's the first and the bigger of the two numbers in a blood pressure reading, to bring that down to 140 for adults under the age of 60 and maybe 150 for people over 60. And I can even remember the day when if your upper number was 100 plus your age, you were pretty good. Well, that must have been a long, long time ago, <laughs> no, that Dr. Wasn't that long ago. But the findings of a major new study now show that lowering blood pressure even more down to a systolic pressure of 120 can reduce the risk of heart attack, heart failure, and stroke by one-third and the risk of death by one-quarter. Pretty impressive. These findings are being hailed as a potential turning point in how hypertension should be treated. Here to talk about the results of the SPRINT study, as it's called, is Dr. William Haley. Dr. Haley is a kidney specialist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and was one of the study's investigators. He joins us by phone. Welcome to the program, Dr. Haley. Good to have you. Good to be on with you. So this has got to be pretty exciting for you and your co-investigators. Tell us briefly what you learned from this study and why it's so important. Well, what we learned was that this lower goal was, in fact, best in terms of lowering uh, heart, kidney, and brain uh, events. Uh, in adults over 50, because that was the population and that was the question. Would the lower goal uh, result in improved outcomes for that group of patients? Mind you, the diabetics were not included in this study, having been in a separate NIH study, nor were people with um, prior stroke or polycystic kidney disease. But for the remainder, we were quite interested to know how low should that blood pressure target actually be, and this study results were unblinded in a dramatic fashion by the NIH uh, just late last week. So the people didn't know exactly what they were getting in terms of uh, medication and whether or not they were getting a placebo or the real drug? Well, actually not. Uh, we weren't using placebos. We were blinded to the, uh, the results of the trial in terms of uh, the, the two groups. But we, uh, patients were treated with the usual blood pressure medications. Uh, the, the whole essence of the trial had to do with target blood pressure. We had one group targeting blood pressure 120 or below and one group targeting the traditional 140. That seems, 120 seems so low, but that's probably just because it's never been that, that's the regular course. Um, well, of course, 120 would be cons- uh, has been considered normal. But there was some evidence before this trial uh, that lower might be better, uh, but it was not grade A evidence. Uh, it, was, uh, it was observational mostly, 
but there were clues that maybe lower would be better. But now you're if convinced the, based on the... This, this was a pretty large study. I mean, you excluded some people like diabetics, but you had 9,000 people in the trial, right? That's correct. We had 9,400, um, and um, we, uh, we included uh, people with... Uh, cardiovascular disease pre-existing. We included uh, many people over the age of 75. Uh, we included patients that had chronic kidney disease. These are all groups that in general have been excluded from uh, trials in the past. Um, and yet, you know, they're the very patients that tend to have most complications. And it showed a mark reduction in what exactly? So what we saw a reduction in 30% reduction in in uh, incident heart attack, heart failure, and stroke. It's not going to part of the problem, isn't it, with people who have high blood pressure is because it's asymptomatic. They they don't feel anything. That people, even though you prescribe the medication for somebody with hypertension, they don't take it. Uh, that's a problem that um, results in an increase in the risk for these. Uh, these cardiovascular events. Maybe this will convince patients otherwise, huh? Maybe it will. You know, there's another thing, though, that's important to point out. The SPRINT trial is not completed, actually. Only the part that had to do with which target blood pressure it seems to be best, and we know the answer to that now. But what we don't know yet is about kidney outcomes and about outcomes uh, that have to do with cognitive function and dementia. So the trial will continue on into next spring uh, to collect the data necessary to answer those questions. So we're quite interested in those questions as well. But for the other data, you have uh, suspended the study because of the results that you were finding? That's correct. The NIH felt that it was time to notify the patients and their primary care doctors uh, about these uh, significant findings uh, because it was no longer... Uh, the right thing to do to uh, separate people into the two different groups. It's a it's pretty impressive finding. Should patients go to their doctors and start talking about uh, maybe they should lower their blood pressure? Absolutely, we are uh, we are encouraging patients to to call us or to call their their uh, family doctors or their primary care physicians in order to determine whether this lower goal is best for them. And you're uh, considering this lower goal to be appropriate for all ages. So, you know, it's normal, isn't it, for your blood pressure to get a little bit higher as you get older. But even if you're 60, 70, 80 years old, you ought to shoot for getting your uh, systolic blood pressure down to 120? That is what the study shows, and that's part of why it's so dramatic and so shocking, because we had patients, there was no upper limit on the age. We had patients in their 90s participating here, that we were getting, uh, if they were in the 120 group, then we were treating them to that target. And we were concerned, I was, that uh, the 120 group might be at risk for worse outcomes, and it turns out to be just the opposite. Well, pretty interesting. Dr. William Haley, congratulations to you and your uh, colleagues. It's a significant study and hopefully will be uh, well-received by the public, and people will go in and see their physicians, get their systolic blood pressure down to 120. That's right. Thanks so much for being with us. Dr. William Haley, kidney specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Good to talk to you. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.